Bitcoin's an intelligence test, but it's also an epistemic humility test. You don't have to know everything about Bitcoin. No, nobody knows everything about Bitcoin. The question is, do you pretend you know when you don't? And if you do, you'll be exposed. Hello there and welcome from New York City. It's been a hectic couple of days. It's great to be back in New York. We hung out at PubKey yesterday to watch the Rail Bedford stream with a bunch of Bitcoiners. Sadly, we lost to Wellinborough. I'm absolutely gutted. Still, the season goes on. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And today on the show, I've got a massive pair. And I've got Troy Cross with Sean Connell. Both have been on the show previously, Troy a few times, and when we were out in Austin, we decided to pair them up. Now, these two work really well together. Troy has been absolutely killing it in the mining space, and Sean's understanding of Bitcoin mining and energy meant getting the two together would make for an absolute banger of show, and they both absolutely crushed it. So I love this. If you've got any questions about this, do reach out to me. Just a note that tomorrow is our live WBD event at PubKey, 6.30 kickoff. We've got a live interview with the legend of Junseth. We've got a Q&A afterwards, and then we're just going to be hanging out. Some people grabbing a beer, some people grabbing some snacks. So hopefully see some of you there. If you want to get a ticket, head over to whatbitcoindid.com. Also, if you've got any questions about this or anything else, please do drop me an email. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. And also, if you want to check out our Patreon, it's patreon.com forward slash whatbitcoindid. Come join us. We've got some exclusive content that we've been making here in New York for you guys. All right, enjoy the rest of your week, and I'll see you all soon. Troy, how are you? I'm good. How are you, Peter? Good. You sound a bit croaky. I have just been through the the illness. The yes. sickness bug. The sickness. Yeah, I had the sickness bug. Sean, how are you? Fabulous. Also experienced the sickness bug over the holidays, but uh, I'm glad we're filming now because I'm good. We've got a lot of good stuff to talk about as well. Troy, I, I see you a lot these days, not just on the podcast. I, I, bumped in, I bump, literally bumped into you in Amsterdam. I didn't even know you were there. Yeah, it's great. I think this is my fourth time on your show. Fourth time. In the year, yeah. Well, you're one of those people now kind of has an open invite. If you've got shit to talk about, we want you on. Thanks. We'll see if that open that invite stays open <laughs> after today. That's been a hell of a... What, what was it, about a year ago you first came on? Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> hell of a year you've had. Amazing year. Amazing journey. We've met all your friends. We're going to organize the philosopher's retreat. Make that shit happen. Uh, Sean, it's been, what, six months since I saw you last? About I think that? so. About yeah. that. It was yeah. here in Austin, wasn't it? Uh, it was in Austin, and I think it was around summertime. Yeah. yeah. Well, good to see you again. What's, what's new with you? What have you been working on? Um, been busy with, with, well, busy with family. My kids are seven and nine. And so that's, uh, you know, whenever I leave home, is I usually make my trips very concise and efficient so that I spend time with my kids. Uh, and then really keeping busy with, with Lansing, the company, which I'm EVP of power for them. And, you know, as we know, there's been lots of stuff happening in the Bitcoin and energy space, which has been uh, a tremendous opportunity for folk, uh, opportunity for many folks. Um, but yeah, real busy. Right? The, the energy side of Bitcoin is super interesting and how it's become such a big part of the conversation because... I mean, I doubt, Danny, what, first three years we even talked about it? Barely. It's been really the last two years it's all changed. Yeah, we barely spoke about it. And then because of the kind of energy fud, it, it kind of came up a bit more and more. And now it's a central part of what we talk about. We made, what, two shows last week just on nuclear alone. Huh. Um, I think it's like this also kind of evolution of, of uh, the topic of Bitcoin because it permeates all these other topics. Like as a show, we make many shows now where we don't actually talk about Bitcoin, we talk about other things. So I found it super interesting learning about it and my understanding of energy is growing. I've constantly got more questions. Uh, I'm going to have more questions for you. Uh, Troy, you've been 
obviously pushing and talking a lot about the interesting things that can be done with mining, and I'm going to lean on you with that. And Sean, uh, last time we talked a lot about, I spoke a lot about grid stability. I'm, I'm going to lean on that for you. Um, but I really just, yeah, for both of you, I'll start with you, Troy. Kind of, what's your, yeah, somebody who's been like heavily in the Bitcoin scene, not just buying socks, but heavily in the Bitcoin scene for this last year. What's your kind of perspective? How have you read the kind of evolution of these conversations? Do you have the socks on today? I didn't wear the socks. Maybe I should have. They are a good luck charm. Remind me, how much are those socks worth now? Well, five Bitcoin. So when I don't know what the price of Bitcoin is, 17000 So, So $100,000 socks. Yeah, but you have to understand I have two dozen of them in the drawer <laughs> at home. So, um, the, 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 at one point, they were worth $350,000. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's getting easier and easier to replace the loss from the socks as the <laughs> price drops. Um, yeah, yeah, in terms of what I've seen, I mean, it, I'll just speak for myself. Um, I think I was t- telling Sean this. I think the energy rabbit hole itself is just as deep and interesting as Bitcoin's. And I kind of think it's the defining issue of our time, actually, how humans relate to energy. And I I actually wouldn't have gone anywhere near this deep had it not been for Bitcoin and the FUD. So, you know, thank you, FUDsters, Mm -hmm. for really bringing me into an issue that is I still barely understand. Most people don't understand at all, and yet it's it's defining, uh, you know, it's a defining issue of our of our day. Um, and yeah, of course. I mean, I think we'll get into this. I think Bitcoin has a huge role to play in uh, our energy future, what that future looks like, and taking advantage of it, whatever it does look like. Um, but energy itself, quite apart from Bitcoin, is absolutely fascinating and counterintuitive. And that has been, um, you know, Sean was asking me what's been like the most, like the high points of my experience since being Bitcoin. And I, and the first thing that jumped to mind was just like learning and learning about what, well, you learn about everything in Bitcoin, as you know, but maybe the most rewarding and surprising thing that I'm learning about is energy. Danny, what was that Brandon Quitton quote? He said, Bitcoin mining is everything you don't know about energy combined with everything you don't know about Bitcoin. It's pretty perfect. And and just to add to that, uh, I remember clearly when Peter van Valkenburg was called uh, in front of the Senate testimony, he had a t- Senate testimony here with regards to Bitcoin. And he has this brilliant quote, and I, I will get it wrong. Um, but what he said is that for every illicit transaction or use of Bitcoin for illicit purposes, there's somebody in uh, Nigeria or Belarus who's using Bitcoin to fight against authoritarianism. You know, for every other illicit use, there is somebody using Bitcoin for good. And he said, look, technology is neutral. We use for good and bad. And all of the energy FUD really came to a fore for us two days ago. We interviewed Eric from Gridless down mm-hmm. in Africa. And he was explaining to us, you know, 40% of people there do not have electricity. Once it goes dark, they go to bed because it's pitch black. Kids mm-hmm. can't, you know, maybe they can learn, you know, they can do some work via paraffin light, but that is also dangerous. And you talked to me about that, and it just made me think of the pri- privileged fucks who sit in, you know, well-developed Western cities criticizing Bitcoin without really considering the positive impact it brings to communities, you know, in places like this. So um, I feel like that that the Bitcoin mining thing is now extending that, that point from Peter Van Valkenburg. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's amazing that you have to learn about energy poverty, energy scarcity from Bitcoin FUD and then actually finding out how Bitcoin is addressing it. That's not how we should learn about energy scarcity. You know, it should be 
It's a huge headline that a billion people don't have reliable access to power and that their lives are measurably and substantially worse um, in all sorts of ways because of that and their economy is worse. <laughs> but, um, but that is indeed how I learned about it. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I think that's what forced me to reconsider and not just ignore someone like Alex Epstein, who, like I said, I don't, I've said before, I don't 100% agree with them, but he's at least made me reconsider yeah, other people around the world and their economic situation. Um, how about yourself, Sean? Over the last year or so, what, what, what's really stood out for you? Sure. So, and I'll tie into kind of the, uh, the energy rabbit hole, right? And so, like, so for me, it's like I've, you know, I've started that journey about uh, four years ago on the Bitcoin uh, rabbit hole. And, and so for energy, it's like I spent um, about 15, 20 years in the energy trading space, um, had done an executive energy MBA, and, you know, I knew a bit about the space. And so I'd say that, like, you know, with my combined experience before, I was about a third of the way down that kind of energy rabbit hole. And uh, in just the past two years, you start kind of learning about all these different applications and kind of, you know, my experience I've had in the past couple of years in, in kind of Bitcoin mining space is like, I've gone deeper, but I recognize that there's still like, uh, an infinite amount that still is undiscovered along that journey. Um, as it relates to kind of like what you're talking about um, within, you said it was in, in Africa, the use case? Yeah. yeah. K- Kenya? Yeah. 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 And, and Troy brought this up, I think, on your last show, and it's kind of like Bitcoin as a tool, right? And so I think what we're learning is like, you know, I had a conversation with Troy about that, this afterwards, is like, you know, I kind of been envisioning like Bitcoin mining is just like this Swiss army knife. Hmm. Right, and there's there's a several different tools, and there's several different kind of benefactors for using this tool. And you know, I might use kind of like the uh, the screwdriver most of my house. Troy might use the the corkscrew most of your uh, his house, but that tool can be used differently in different applications in different markets. Right. So, for example, um, the Bitcoin mining uh, Swiss Army knife in West Texas. Uh, is absorbing a lot of excess renewables, helping you kind of accelerate the renewables build out to create this customer that can uh, purchase when nobody else wants, but also turn down when there's scarcity events. And, and you talked about now in, uh, in Africa, like that tool is a saying, okay, now we need to use that Swiss Army knife to like to bootstrap a community, right? To create some type of economic benefit to having some type of mining that's in some place that was tapping into some resource that might not be able to be tapped into unless you had this really kind of mobile uh, 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 application that can be used to kind of create that. And so kind of helping kind of, you know, build these communities in remote places. So it really is this kind of like Swiss army knife that has, yeah, many kind of benefactors. I think about like, um, benefactors of, you know, like, um, a policymaker, right? So what does it do to policymakers is that we're in this energy transition where you need to go from, you know, fossil fuels to renewables. And so this is now, you know, something that policymakers can have as a, as a flexible resource that kind of helps them, you know, bridge that gap, right, to kind of get to that, which is like a flexible resource for uh, having more renewables come to the grid. Um, for grid operators, you know, they're most concerned about reliability of the grid, right? And so that means that, um, you know, they don't want to be doing load shedding, right? So they want to be able to have capacity available for them for kind of, you know, in case there's a, a plant that trips offline, they've got something that can turn up but they also want to have resources that can kind of real-time manage supply and demand, right? So that's a, now the tool for the grid operators. Then you think about the, the benefactor of uh, a renewables developer, right? Who has this uh, perpetual deposit of wind and or sun, and they've got this renewable asset, but they can't get good value out of it because there's no power lines to kind of take that power to the, to the locations. And so this, this tool to that developer now is saying, 
these other miners are now going to come to them, right? So it's this ability to create a new customer that doesn't need to have these wires to be sent. So these now you can start, you know, accelerating more renewables because they're, they're getting more value for, uh, for the power. And then, you know, lastly, you know, the Bitcoin miners, right? Which is, you know, the economic value that they're getting by having low cost power and, you know, locating these um, unique places. So it really is a kind of a fascinating tool that's, you know, different in every single market and not the same use case, but, uh, but a special tool. I really like that Swiss army knife analogy. Um, Sean, I, Sean has one more, which is, uh, which I also like and have to mention, which is duct tape. <laughs> <laughs> we'll come back to duct tape, Swiss army knife. But I, I don't think it's the Bitcoin mining as a Swiss army knife. I think Bitcoin itself is a Swiss army knife. And anyone who comes to Bitcoin finds out how the hell's them? What, it, what use is it for them, whether you're a company or an individual? I know what use it is for me. Uh, the most prominent use or the most obvious use is the times where I have to pay or get paid and it, we, we don't have a way to transfer from bank to bank. That is, a, that is, you know, I can talk about savings investment, but really that is an actual tool. That is a tool that I've used for the purpose of running a business. Bitcoin mining has, has almost become this uh, developed as this unknown unknown. It, it came out of nowhere and is now offering all these new uh, exciting things with regards to grids and uh, uh, landfill sites, as I spoke with Adam Wright. I'm intrigued to see what the unknown unknowns are that come out in the future because I expect there will be more. I don't know what it will be, but I expect people will figure out how to use this technology for other things. We've spoken about unknown unknowns. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I'm, I think it's some kind of switch flipped for me at some point as I kept seeing new applications that surprised me about Bitcoin mining. Mining on landfill gas was one of those, uh, but I didn't know about grid balancing. For one, I didn't know the role that uh, the Bitcoin mine could play in providing ancillary services to the grids. I didn't really understand the way, the problems that renewable developers ha had, uh, the financial problems they had that Bitcoin solves. Um, and I didn't, foresee the extent and variety of uses of waste heat from Bitcoin mining, which I think we're only beginning to understand. Um, you know, I was telling Sean last night when I looked at the percentage of energy worldwide that goes to heat, it's just extraordinary. It dwarfs the Bitcoin network um, uh, by orders of magnitude, and it contributes to peak demand from the grid. So heating and, and cooling are, are especially powerful sources of load, right? So yeah, I didn't foresee any of this in Bitcoin and I wonder what we're not seeing. Having missed all of these things to begin with, I wonder what we're not seeing. And that's, you know, kind of the most exciting thought to me about uh, mining is what, or what parts, what little parts of that Swiss army knife tools have we not even unlocked yet? And also which ones are gonna be used the most and in what, in what applications? And that's where I have a huge question mark. It's not even like the tools we don't know about, but what's the distribution? How much Bitcoin mining is going to be you know, distributed in uh, capturing waste methane around the world? How much of it's going to be centralized in large you know, data centers? And uh, you know, how much of it is going to make, make use of, I guess what we're looking at here is kind of alternate revenue streams other than the Bitcoin that come out of your mining. And the question is, which, what's the volume of the alternate revenue streams and the distribution of those streams? And then how, what are the second order effects of that distribution on energy systems and the economy? And those are big open questions for me. 
So, as you know, I'm making a film next week, and one of the most interesting things, or well, the thing I'm most excited for, we're going to see a guy who heats his swimming pool with ASICs. <laughs> I mean, how fucking cool is that? Like, he is heating his pool and mining Bitcoin at the same time. I just think that's uh, that's incredible. But yeah, though, those unknown unknowns are kind of like the exciting part. But uh, it's it's Bitcoin's like evolving into this thing that none of us really know what it might like. Its final form will be. But it does feel like it's becoming this kind of backbone of uh, human coordination and where incentives matter. It, it is it is kind of like this perfect free market where incentives are driving these new forms of activity. And the great thing about these incentives is making it harder for the fudsters to argue against them. And it's making it more difficult for regulators to argue against the benefit it brings to everyone. It's really hard to ban heaters. Yeah. If they happen to do some computation along the way. Heaters and bank code and uh, Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it's it, it, it's real it's a real Luddite move to say <laughs> to say uh, here's a technology we it does a lot of different things. Uh some of them we, we don't even know about yet, but let's ban it right now just in case. <laughs> it's a real Luddite move. I, I usually don't like overlapping analogies, but the, the duct tape actually kinda comes into play here, which is like <laughs> Um, so it is a Swiss Army knife, right? And we're we're discovering that, like, you know, the the one tool that we thought was there, which was like hashing, right, to produce Bitcoin, is turns out there's a tool for grid balancing, ancillary services, communities, right? All these things that are on there. Um, an overlay to that is that you know, and you talked up here about like the unknown unknowns about kind of what's going to come out of it. And I was looking at kind of some other comparisons to Bitcoin, and, and one of them came up was with duct tape, right? And so duct tape was invented in World War II. And the reason for the invention was it was originally a green tape and it was called duct tape and not with a T. Uh, and it was for keeping the ammunition cases, the water out, right? And so then it was green, kind of looked like a duck and so they call it duct tape. Um, but during the kind of the war, they discovered it had all these other benefits and uses that they could kind of use for kind of weapons and kind of, you know, fix things. And, you know, what we use um, duct tape for, uh, the war ended, and then you know there started to be kind of like a housing boom, and they started using the duct tape on 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 ducks in in the houses, right? And so kind of using this tape for for those ducks, and it changed from green tape to silver tape, and then it just exploded, right? And it's just like, and now every house I've I've got four rolls of duct tape in my house, and I use it for many different things, right? And so there was a lot of unknown unknowns that came out of this initial, you know, keep the ammunition's cases dry. And now it's just kind of like widespread everywhere. So it's kind of discovering that about like the, the Bitcoin of just like the duct tape was originally just hashing, but then we're figuring out all these other use cases for plugging holes in different areas and different communities. But, and there's still a lot of unknown unknowns, right? That are still coming out. I taught Danny a use case for duct tape yesterday, didn't I? What was that? When we needed the folder. Oh yeah. I had to go down to FedEx. I had to go and get um, something FedEx in the UK, a one page signed document, but it had to be a physical document. I was like, have we got a folder? And he was like, no. So I got two other pieces of A4, and then I used duct tape around the edge to just create a little folder. Mm-hmm. Danny was impressed. <laughs> I think there's another thing that's also been interesting, especially in the last week, is uh, Bitcoin shines a, a light on reputation and credibility. Um, uh, I specifically want to talk about uh, Peter Zahan on Joe Rogan. Somebody who people have said, you've got to get him on the show, Guy understands geopolitics, hugely uh, you know, credible and knowledgeable guy. And the first thing I see of him going around on, on Twitter is him explaining Bitcoin. Um, uh, and the amount of things he got wrong were, were 
was actually crazy. I mean, have you seen the video? You seen that? Snip. Yeah, I mean, look, he, he got so much wrong, but he explained it with such confidence that he is now disseminating that to millions of listeners of Rogan's show. And, you know, if you can't uh, hold Rogan back for that, you can't hold that too much against Rogan. But that was like, that was a situation where I was like, oh, okay, well, I, you're, you're instantly not credible for me. You're, yeah, and that, mm-hmm. I think that's happened all through media as we've constantly had to battle the people who failed to do the research or at least give an intellectually honest answer. Like, I don't mind if you don't like Bitcoin, but give me an intellectually honest answer. Give me an answer regarding money, why you think it will, uh, you know, will break the money system, why, why it can't perform as money, something like Jeff Snyder's done. But just to spout absolute bullshit, confuse Bitcoin with crypto, that to me was a real, real dent in his credibility. He got stuff wrong about nuclear in that interview as well. I heard. So it that's come around now. Hasn't taken it? to task for the you know by the by the nuclear advocates and experts, um, and the same cocksure attitude. And um, yeah, Bitcoin's an intelligence test, but it's also an epistemic humility test. You don't have to know everything about Bitcoin. Nope, nobody knows everything about Bitcoin. The question is, do you pretend you know when you don't? And if you do, you'll be exposed. But I was. Talking to Sean about this last night. Or you just make a podcast about not knowing about Bitcoin. (laughs) (laughs) And then you get away with it. You know, it's telling Sean, we're in a moral panic right now about Bitcoin itself and about mining. And that seems to be ramping up. And, you know, we talked about this last time. The FTX debacle just poured fuel on that moral panic, the fires of that moral panic. And if you just look at the social side, you think Bitcoin is getting hammered. In the in the media and in the popular mind, um, because uh, the FUD has never been more intense, and it's never been more intense around energy, and it's never been more intense on the political front. I mean, it's the same old FUD, but it's just like somehow now we've reached some threshold of freakout where it's it, it, it's become normalized to freak freak out about. It. It's like the Overton window is excluding Bitcoiners, and that's that's the social side. And if you look at the actual, what Bitcoin is actually doing and what Bitcoin mining is actually doing, it, it, it's just the opposite. Like we're starting to see these applications of Bitcoin that are pro-social explode. We're starting to see Bitcoin's um, power usage get more flexible. And we're seeing, starting to see it benefit grids more than it did at the height of the bull market. Right. So these things are radically out of sync. Um, you get the confidence of, uh, of Peter Zahan and that it's reflected in a popular confidence. And yeah, Bitcoin's bad and, and it's a scam. It's bad for the environment, blah, blah, blah. And at the same time, the reality is trending in the opposite direction for anybody who knows about it. And it's just like, what's going to happen when this, you know, unstoppable force meets uh, this immovable object? Because at some point, uh, at some point, the reality and the, and the narrative have to match, right? And, and, and it's like, will it go the way of, of let's say, other moral panics, like uh, marijuana moral panic, where it's decades of uh, legislation that's built on ignorance, or the nuclear panic, which is, you know, f- 50 years on from its origin and which has delayed the transition uh, to a uh, decarbonized grid. Um, or will it go the way of the, you know, the satanic worship, moral panic that happened in the 80s where it was fairly short-lived and, and it looked ridiculous, right? And that, that remains to be seen. And so, yeah, we, we see it as a test, but that's because we actually know something about it. Yeah, but those moral panics are breaking down. 
again are. and again because of incentives. Um, I mean, the marijuana side of things here in the US, I don't know how many states now, but the majority now is either legal or decriminalized. Most cities I go to now, all I can do is smell weed. Um, and did society collapse? No. Did it, uh, did it remove a certain part of the criminality from the system? Yeah. Did it stop criminalizing people who should not have been criminalized? Yes. Did it add tax revenue yes. to, the, to the state? Yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, is it the state or the city? I mean, I wouldn't know. But either way, you know, it, it added tax revenue. And that's now expanding into consideration for hallucinogenics, uh, MDMA considered as a PTSD drug. I mean, because of the incentives. Uh, same with nuclear. I mean, the nuclear moral panic is starting to break down now because of the incentives. Uh, the last few reactors they wanted to close down in Germany still now been extended i believe the facility in california has been extended yeah diablo canyon has been extended and you know we interviewed somebody who works on small modular reactors the other day and he said that there's like a bipartisan bill now to promote nuclear again for the incentives because uh, everything this moral panic has tried to do to crush the nuclear sector has failed and it's just led to uh people not being able to get this carbon free energy and so i think the same will happen with bitcoin because it usually comes down to money and bitcoin is money itself so as long as we can get in the hands of enough people a bit like Corey said as long as we can get into enough hands of enough people then then i think the incentives work for bitcoin more than more than anything else you keep looking at sean well i mean sean i think sean is on the same exact page you know, I, I think that like a lot of, you know, tie back into like the, the mining space and the FUD space about kind of, you know, this is bad and, you know, this is going to destroy grids and stuff. And I, I think kind of what's happening is like, you know, you know, what Trump's FUD is enough evidence of the opposite, right? And so like, you know, we, we've gone from a time in 2017 where like Bitcoin mining, the state of Bitcoin mining was the advanced setup was a two megawatt container in an industrial park. Right. And so that was the setup and kind of it's running base load. And you go to 2020 and you get, you know, facilities like Rockdale uh, with Riot that they might have had a couple hundred megawatts. It's a very big facility. You're like, oh my goodness, it went from, you know, this two megawatt container to this, you know, 200 megawatts. And now we're getting to these facilities that are kind of like, you know, six, 700 megawatt sites. And so, like, as you see these coming on, it looks big and scary, right? Because it's like, oh my goodness, this is just going to suck the energy. It's going to compete with me. But, you know, what I was really excited about coming through summer was just like the Bitcoin break-evens in the summertime were about $75, $80, um, or sorry, they're about $125 in the summertime. And there was the peak power prices in, in Texas where, you know, they were trading up to $200 coming in the summer. So what I was really excited about is just like, we're going to get to go through summer and we're going to have evidence that says that these are miners that are going to be behaving to the signal that's happening on the power grid and turning down. And so we're going to get all these stories of things that are happening. And those are starting to tease out, right? And we're starting to hear kind of what happened in different winter storms and in different areas. And, and so like the evidence, you know, trumps that. But, you know, when it's just the facility just being built and you just kind of have to make up a narrative, right? It's really easy to paint the picture that this is bad. But now we're starting to kind of hear these other stories in different locations. You talk about like Africa, we can talk about different grids, right? And so like that's really going to start to kind of, you know, push on. And so like I think that kind of, you know, kind of uh, mutes the fight in those areas. And so that, you know, the more this industry expands, like we're gonna get more and more evidence, evidence of that. And there's, you know, like, 
there are no new stories of Bitcoin miners hooking up to coal facilities to restore those plants in the United States. Like those are not happening, right? So like the storyline is, you know, all the things that are positive outcomes that are happening. So you know, it's quite interesting. You know, off the back of this, we talk about how you, know, you talk about the moral panic about things there shouldn't be a moral panic about marijuana, Bitcoin, and nuclear energy. Uh, but there are things I think there should be a moral panic about that there haven't been. But as the moral panic breaks down on these and people realize the incentives, I think there's starting to build a moral panic around certain things like media and media incentives, uh, government institution incentives, politician incentives themselves. You know, we're increasingly, especially here in the US, we're increasingly see, uh, seeing how much money that politicians are making and we're questioning how they're making and we're questioning their share trades. We've had it in the UK over this last week with this question about donations towards politicians. So conversely, the things, the, the people who are causing the problems, which you can you can pretty much put it all down to politicians and media, their incentives are being exposed and their negative incentives are being exposed. So my kind of hope is like we're going through this transitionary flip, which is painful and there's polarization and people are falling up. But what we're doing is I, th I feel like we're trending towards the right incentives for both business, you know, media, governance. And you know, I don't know how this will play out, but mm -hmm. at least it's happening in the right way with this full transparency of everything we're seeing. That's a great thought that we... Um, that the FUD is coming from a group whose incentives are themselves being scrutinized. And you get a kind of perfect storm when it's, uh, when it's FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried. Of course. Who's the distorter of, of incentives. So you get, you, get, you get a perfect combination of crypto FUD and, uh, and po politician funding media FUD uh, in, in, in one. Um, yeah, I, I, have, I have no confidence about where it goes, but I... In, in the long run, I think it has to go in the direction you're saying. In the short run, anything could happen and uh, because people are irrational <laughs> and uh, panics are real. They happen. So I, I have no uh, prediction in the short term. But the nice thing about Bitcoin is it's global. And, um, you, you know, the moral panics are not going to be global. People are not going to be wrapped up in the same moral panic in Nigeria, in Kenya, in El Salvador, uh, in Paraguay, as they are in um, Massachusetts, you know, as they are in Brussels. So I, I, this is the great thing about Bitcoin. It's just the question of who, who takes advantage of these incentives, not whether they will be taken advantage of. You know, something, one of these basic misunderstandings people have about Bitcoin is that some policymaker can do something about it. In, in terms of uh, the, the global incentive to mine, let's say, you can't do anything about it. Issuance is algorithmic and uh, no, no tax policy, no incentive structure that the government offers can change that one bit. Any policy created sits out of Bitcoin and is really a co coercive layer on top of Bitcoin. It's a, it's a coercive layer on the users of Bitcoin, Yeah, but there's no policy on Bitcoin. Right. Yeah. Good luck with that one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Sean, you talked there about the grid. I do want to get into a bit more detail on that mm -hmm. now. So I think it was back in 2021, there was a, a big freeze here in Texas. Um, mm -hmm. Well noted. Uh, can you remind everyone as best as possible what happened then? And then let's use that as a lens of what's happened recently. Um, I know there's been another you know, mm -hmm. extreme weather event here. I don't know how similar they were, um, 
But uh, what I do know is that there was a, a response and that Bitcoin mining played a role. Can you just give us sure. a bit of background to that? So in 2021, um, I believe the time was in, in February, um, there was winter storm Yuri came through and it was a prolonged period of Arctic air that moved down through Texas. What made it very special and unique was that it wasn't just like a, a one day transitionary kind of pass through Texas. It was a long drawn out kind of cold. And so during that time is that for, and in, in the way the Texas grid was set up was that um, for the days that came through, there was um, not a lot of wind and solar that were being produced at that time. There was also not a lot of uh, power plants that had been winterized, right? So that could actually be kind of prepared for the cold weather. I'm from Alberta. Like our power plants are built to be kind of run in very cold weather, right? And so in, in Texas, uh, not so much. So what happened in winter storm area was a combination of a whole bunch of things, right? Uh, another one on top of that was that um, heating for, you know, in, in Texas, it's very rare in the south part of Texas that you're going to need to put your heat on. So the heaters they have are very inefficient because you don't need to turn them on that often. But during that event, you know, when the cold kind of stuck in the area and this kind of occurred a big boom in kind of this actual demand for electricity, and there was massive um, uh, failures on the ability to deliver gas, and then also power plants were tripping offline, uh, coal plants, nuclear power plants, everything was tripping offline, uh, and they needed to do rolling blackouts, right? And so in a power market, as in, I think we mentioned the last time we spoke, is that there's the, the heart rate of the, the grid, and it's you know 60 hertz, right? So 60 beats per second type thing. And you know the way the grid operator manages the, uh, the, the grid is they just gotta make sure that the frequency is all at 60. Right? And so if their load's going up, they bring generation on because it'll change the frequency. And so they're always um, uh, balancing uh, around that frequency. Um, and then in the winter storm event, you know, essentially what happened was is that you know, load kept going up and there wasn't enough generation to, to meet that. And so what a grid operator needs to do is they need to start load shutting. And so during that event, there was several days of, uh, of, of blackouts that were in Texas. Um, and it was a prolonged event. And for context of uh, what it looked like for Bitcoin mining, um, there's approximately uh, about 600 megawatts of Bitcoin mining connected uh, in ERCOT at that time. Um, we have high degree of certainty that the majority of those megawatts actually did turn offline uh, for that event. Uh, but there's, you know, call it so 600 megawatts turn offline, but, you know, winter storm area was very um, complex and you can't just kind of point the finger at just one thing that happened. Um, does that make sense for kind of... Well, it, it sounds like what you're saying to me is that the, the grid in Texas isn't ready for a, for a rare, freak, cold spell. Yes. And, I, you know, like if you think about kind of like power plants, um, the coal plants and natural gas plants, there's a big buildup that kind of happened in the 70s, in the 80s. And those, those plants have a life expectancy of about 50 years, right? And so that kind of takes us up to where we are now, right? And so like... It's, it's kind of this combination of this kind of freak weather event, but it's also that you have these plants that are coming to the end of life, right? And so like, are they gonna be reliable and kind of be able to come online? And so there could be some challenges with that, right? So it's, it's really understanding that like every single region has a different mix of generation and, and power grids are very complex. And I, I'm sorry I couldn't kind of boil it down to kind of a, a simple kind of, this is what happened. And if we had this magic bullet, this would have saved it. But it's very tricky and challenging. And you know, something you might hear about, um, a term is called net load. Right, and this was never a term 20 years ago because all generation that was uh, online in a power grid was just you know natural gas plants, coal plants. There was no wind and solar, and so now grids measure net net load, which is essentially what is the expected load for the entire grid, subtract out all the renewables, 
right? Because that's the amount of actual dispatchable generation that you need online. And so if you have a whole bunch of wind and solar coming into some type of big winter event, it's not a big deal, right? Because you don't have to call on so much generation to meet that demand. The big challenge is, and this is, you know, kind of what happened in Winter Storm Uri as well, is that you had very low wind and solar, so you needed to call on this large amount of generation. And that large amount of generation, there was complications with gas delivery, complications with plants that were tripping offline, that were winterized. And so all these other issues that were kind of preventing that from kind of servicing that dispatchable generation. So you okay if I shift order kind yep. of what happened here? So like, so in the recent event, you know, there was... There were some rollouts in some other regions across the U.S. that wasn't Texas, right? And so, like an an easy thing to say would say that Bitcoin saved the grid over here and didn't over here, which is <laughs> it'd be nice if you could say that, but it's it's not simple like that. Okay. So what happened for this event was that it was um, it was a two day, two or three day kind of weather event that came through. So it wasn't a very long, prolonged period that was just kind of sitting over the, over the, over over Texas, and really strong wind and solar. Right. And like um, coming into December 21st, 22nd, you know, a massive amount of, I think there was like 35 gigawatts of, of wind that was online out of a grid that's consuming, uh, call it uh, 50, 60 gigawatts. So, massive amount. But then that tapered off on December 23rd. And on December 23rd, your, your wind went quite low. Um, and so now your net load is high, right? Because your, your renewables are offline. Um, and so now in 2022, we previously had 600 megawatts of Bitcoin mining. There's about 1,600 megawatts of known mining loads in Texas. And all those loads came off, right? Um, which essentially kind of freed up that power that would have been kind of being used by them and kind of, you know, uh, using that power for other uh, customers in the Texas grid. And there was enough generation online that was dispatchable that could actually meet that load. But it's also worth noting that during this event, um, 20% of the actual, I think the number is 20% of the natural gas and coal plants had tripped offline, right? And so, again, you can look at that and say, like, hey, we failed. We were supposed to winterize these plants, and we didn't. But really, it's about kind of these plants that are coming to end of life, and maybe they're not completely uh, winterized, but, you know, there were still some issues that happened, right? And so there's, uh, there were a few hours, a few, uh, like a time period in there where there's uh, some scarcity happening, Right, but it didn't get to the point where, like we did back in 2021, uh, where there was um, uh, rolling blackouts. And I, and I think Danny, I sent you uh, a slide, and this is just kind of this is a uh, so Lansing has a, a hosting facility that we have in Fort Stockton, and this is essentially what we did for our power consumption uh, during this event. So explain it so people listening can understand. Yeah, so I got a chart with three lines. Uh, one line represents it's the green in the picture, which is the uh, it's our Fort Stockton demand. And then this one here, it was a, a five megawatt site. And so you can see, yeah, so the green line is the five megawatt uh, Fort Stockton load. The white line at the very bottom is the Bitcoin break even, which at this time was about $75. And then the yellow line represents the ERCOT real time power price, right? And so on the far left, right, we see between December 22nd and December 23rd, um, the price of power was very cheap, but it was very cold in Texas, right? But there's just a whole lot of wind and solar that was online that was, you know, essentially causing prices to be very low, right? And so on the December 22nd is this facility is running full out. You can see the green line at the top. And then we go into December 23rd, and it was the morning where it started to get really cold and the wind and solar came offline. And you can see the yellow line spiked up. And so that is the axis of, on the left, which is it spiked to $3,000 per megawatt for that time. 
And so now the, the Bitcoin break even is uh, like $75. So like, you know, the same way, like you're not going to trade me a $20 bill for a $1 bill, like miners aren't going to trade, you know, like they're, <laughs> they're not going to buy the $3,000 power to mine for $75. Hmm. Right. So there's the right price signal that's being kind of being sent to the market, which allows um, the miners to actually respond to that. So with Lansing, we have uh, our system is called smart response and it automatically essentially when the price goes above that certain threshold, it automatically reduces the load down below. So you can see that coming into December 23rd, the green line goes all the way to the bottom. The event was so, um, we were so certain that prices would be high that for a Bitcoin mining facility, usually there's about five, five percent of your total load is just your auxiliary uh, power, right? And so we were quite confident that the price would be high for the whole day, that we didn't just kind of normally just, normally we operating just where it's going to go up and down based on kind of where the prices are. But for this day is we actually took it up totally offline because right. we're like the prices for the day ended up selling $600. So it was like, let's just turn off the facility completely and then we'll turn it back on the next day. And so you can see on the 25th, um, our facility kind of ramped up and down because there were some periods where the prices were had still some volatility, but the load was just automatically dropping up and down in response to that pricing. This show is brought to you by Ledin, and from savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of their holdings today without selling their Bitcoin. Now, Ledin only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They are also dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they will re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. And not only is a Ledin sponsor, I am also a customer. I've been using Ledin since they became a sponsor, and I absolutely love the service. Now, if you want to find out more about this, please head over to ledin.io, which is L-E-D-N dot I-O. Next up today, we have Ledger. And now with everything that's happened in Bitcoin over the last few months, it again highlighted the importance of self-custody and why Ledger is such an important company for the industry. Now, I have been using a Ledger Nano S since 2017, since when I got back into Bitcoin. And I'm still using that same Ledger Nano S now. I still got, I literally got it here set with me right now. Now with Ledger, you have industry-leading security built into the Ledger device. And also, they have got a new device coming soon. It's called a Stax. It's totally awesome. I've pre-ordered mine. But the Ledger Nano S has been the leading hardware device for people to store their Bitcoin for years now. Now, if you want to find out more and purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S-H-O-P dot dot com. Also, today, we have BitCasino. Established in 2013, BitCasino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino. Trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide, not only do they have cutting-edge security, fast withdrawals, and VIP experiences that money can't buy. With over 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against each other and 24-7 live chat support, BitCasino is the best online casino for Bitcoiners. To find out more about BitCasino, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award, please head over to bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O.io. And please remember to gamble responsibly. And when you turn the facility off, are you one of the uh, facilities that gets paid to turn off? Are you selling your energy back to the grid? Yeah, so this is kind of um, a big topic. And, kind of, and I think a lot of folks kind of, uh, it's very challenging, right, to kind of figure out the pieces. Um, 
So when you're consuming energy, there's two transactions that can happen. One always happens, right? Which is I'm connected to the grid and I'm going to buy energy at the spot price of energy, right? So that's the transaction that always happens, right? Because you're physically connected to the grid. The second one is I have a hedge in place, right? Which is I've kind of bought a financial product that's going to essentially hedge my price exposure from here, right? That's giving me a locked in fixed price, right? And so then if I'm consuming energy from the grid and I got a fixed price hedge, it's guaranteeing whatever the, uh, guaranteeing the price I'm going to be paying for that power because these two are going to match out, right? Um, so a Bitcoin miner that does not have a hedge but just turned offline is essentially just deciding to not pay $3,000 for power that you can only make $75. There's nobody that's paying the miner to turn off to, to consume that. Well, that was my question because yeah. uh, when people refer to this, they talk about, oh, the, the Bitcoin has turned off to respond. And it, it feels like or sometimes you can read between the lines and think, oh, is this a relationship between the grid and the miners? And they call them up and say, look, we've got a difficult time, could turn yeah. off. But actually, it's all, again, driven by incentives. That's it's right. just driven by price. So it's all automated. Yeah. And so there's a second part to that. So like the first was like physically buying from the grid, turning off, not consuming. If you have a hedge, right, and I think Ryan announced this and they called them energy credits, but essentially that they're going to have this financial hedge they bought it, say it's a fixed price of $50, and if the price was settling $2,000, they are going to collect the difference on this financial hedge that's going to pay them. Hmm. And that's with some counterparty that's not the grid operator, it's just some other kind of a generator or, or some counterparty in the market that did that trade. Now, outside of that is uh, the ancillary services. So this is where uh, a miner will be uh, providing some type of ancillary service, like kind of like backup power, backup capacity that can be turned offline if there's a frequency event kind of being turned offline or whatnot. And the, the punchline on this is that these ancillary services exist for grid operators to procure these ancillaries, primarily to have a, a grid that they, is stable and reliable. And historically, only generation could provide those services, right? Because they could ramp up and ramp down and kind of serve that. So now with miners that have now the ability to, um, uh, so with Lansing, with our smart responses, you can actually uh, qualify to be dispatchable with a grid operator and do frequency response, et cetera. So you can participate in the same programs that are already in play. So it's not a separate subsidy or kind of payment, but like, you know, really a big picture and zooming out is miners are now competing against generation, driving down the price of what that was more expensive product before, right? So you're, you're servicing the customers because, you know, pretend there was like 5,000 megawatts of generation competing for these before, and now you added another 2,000 megawatts of miners, you know, they're essentially competing with them and driving down the price, right? So this is the other kind of payment, which is they are paid to provide those services, but these are things that are already in existence with, with generators. How wild is this? You're smirking at them. <laughs> I mean, because it's wild, because uh, I think the people who are very critical of Bitcoin do so at a very top level. They've either had some bad advice, They've read things online. They haven't actually done the work. When you dig into this, the, the, how smart and clever this integration is and the automation that makes this happen and integration with financial markets, it's, it, it is, a, is, again, it's another incentive system. But I'm smirking because it's so fucking brilliant. Mm -hmm. Can I put um, back to Sean, see if I understood the last point you made? So ancillary services, uh, there's a market for ancillary services. And... Previously, before Bitcoin miners, the people, the people in that market were generators. We've mm -hmm. increased the size of the market by adding Bitcoin miners so that ancillary services are now paying out less 
than yeah. they would be because there's more counterparties to the Correct. grid. And and so that's saving the ultimately rate payers. That's right. Because ancillary services are now cheaper to provide for the grid. Correct. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's a that's a fantastic narrative. That that slide is a fantastic narrative. I, here's here, let me can I can I push back on the way the kind of ways that I get pushed back from these points. So I, I don't know how much power tripped off during that storm from Bitcoin miners. I've heard a gigawatt, I think from someone at Aircot. I know that you could just look at the global hash rate. The storm, you know, affected a lot of the U.S. where a lot of the mining is, and and global hash rate was markedly down, maybe close to thirty percent on that one day. Oh right, right. Okay. So so the whole Bitcoin net. This is what's cool. The whole Bitcoin network really responded to a weather event by drawing less power, mm-hmm. and did not make the the network any less secure during that time, because if you had wanted to attack the network during that time, you would have had to procure power. And power was very expensive during that time, so it kind of let it made me. Isn't that cool? It made me realize that the security of Bitcoin doesn't necessarily vary with the hash rate if the hash rate dip is due to a weather event and power price spike. Right. So we had a massive response from Bitcoin, and even though Sean doesn't want to say Bitcoin saved the grid in Texas, I mean, I I think if we look at the counterfactual, uh, what would have happened if? Bitcoin miners had not been there. I had the exact same question. Mm -hmm. Well, I actually had a double question. I had, if, you know, what would have happened if there was no Bitcoin miners? Say Bitcoin had never existed. How would we, what, where, how would we be different in terms of the energy mix in the grid and what would happen in this scenario? And the second question was, okay, Bitcoin mining exists, but there's no relationship between the Bitcoin mining and the grid. Bitcoin miners themselves are just independent, just doing their thing. What would the, what were those scenarios? How would those scenarios played out? As best as you can assume. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, Danny, there's a slide that's in like the the first slide deck. Mm-hmm. Talks about different types of flexible resources, and it's got yeah. So I kind of think about like, you know, who wants to be a millionaire? Right. Do you remember there's like lifelines? Yeah. Right. Call a friend, uh, pull the audience. I forget the other one. But, um, you know, for, for grids, like when they're addressing kind of flexibility concerns, right, they've got four lifelines, right? These are the four categories of flexibility. Um, the first one is flexibility from generation. So this is we're going to call on the natural gas plant or the coal plant to, to turn up, turn down to kind of balance the grid for what we need. Um, the second one is that we've got flexibility from transmission. And so this includes the transmission network internally, but you know, uh, more so the transmission connections to other grids that you can kind of pull on and, and ask for some help during some times. Um, the third one is flexibility from storage, which is uh, like batteries. And the fourth one is demand side response. So demand response. Um, so these are the four lifelines that like, grids have, right? And so Texas is very unique. And so I'm gonna tie back and kind of like what would happen to Texas. Uh, because there's a transition that's happening where you're replacing fossil fuel generation, the market share of fossil fuel generation is being taken over by renewables, right? And so trend trades in motion. Last year, I think it was 28% of the power came from renewables versus in 2015, it was like 15%. So it's, it's continuing to grow. So your four lifelines are here and in ERCOT is that there's retirements that are happening on these fossil fuel plants. So one of your lifelines is generation, like, you're losing the connectivity of that one, right? So it's decreasing, right? And so like, because now you can't just call on like wind and solar, you need to have flexibility. 
The second one is transmission is, so ERCOT's an islanded grid, right? And so it has DC ties that connect to its neighbor. So there's, that lifeline is not there, right? Every other grid across the US has neighboring regions that you can kind of pull in. So that leaves ERCOT in a very unique position that you're, you're phasing out your lifeline of generation and you've got two new lifelines, well, two uh, other lifelines of uh, storage and demand response. And so batteries are playing a very big role in, in Texas. I think um, a few years ago, there was nearly zero megawatts of, of batteries and, and the number is quite large, call it five to 10 gigawatts of, of batteries that are, are coming into ERCOT. And, and the queue is something like 70 gigawatts that are in the queue as well, right? So very large. Not can, can you give some context of yeah. how much power that is? Uh, the total peak demand uh, record summer peak last year in ERCOT was uh, 80 gigawatts, eight zero. Okay, so pretty much, it's like an insurance then. Right, and so like, but there's large capex that's required for these batteries and yep. there's a cost you have to do and the economics have to make sense in the, the same way. <laughs> and, and there's a time limit. How much, how much time can can those batteries provide that five to 10 gigawatts? That's right. So they, they can be like two hour duration batteries or four hour duration. Most of them in Texas are two hours. So this goes back to the kind of the Swiss army knife again, mm. of just like you can think about Bitcoin as like a long duration storage that's just one way, right? And so it's a, it's a different way to think about it. Um, then on the demand side, uh, risk, uh, uh, management is that, you know, as Texas brings on more and more wind and solar, they're gonna need a really, strong showing from batteries and demand response, right? And so like, there's a way things were in the past and the way things in the future. So, you know, ERCOT is, you know, they've been fabulous to work with and then be excited to integrate these controllable loads because it's, it's really the holy grail for a grid operator to have a load that you can dispatch up and down and have certainty that it's going to do that. Um, so ERCOT's going to have a very large uh, need from batteries and demand response that's very specific to Texas. Um, so you go outside of Texas, it's, it's a very different mix because you know, every different grid has different you know, uh, access to these lifelines, if you will, right? But Texas is a very uh, specific uh, spot. So what would have happened this year um, without Bitcoin mining, call it 1600 megawatts, um, you kind of have to look at you know, what was it also doing prior to that, right? So you can't just look at it in one day of saying, you know, what would have happened if they would have just been consuming the power? Well, you know, there would have been some some challenges. I'm not sure exactly if they would have had blackouts, but they would have probably went to some type of emergency alert. But I think it's like, you know, what else did this load do prior to that event, right? It's like, well, it was, now it was like this base load bid that's gonna buy power when nobody else wants it, right? So it's gonna help you with kind of having some type of base load buyer that allows you to kind of um, continue to expand out like a renewables uh, in certain areas. Um, those miners for the past uh, year and a half or so have also been participating in ancillary services and different demand sides. So like they've been providing, you know, that again, the Swiss Army knife is like, they've been helping grid operators with the reliability of the grid. And then what they needed from the miner during that event was to turn off, right? And so they did, right? And if they hadn't, um, it probably wouldn't have been a good outcome, but I just don't know the exact picture of what that would have been. It was quite ironic. When you showed me the, that previous chart, is that Bitcoin is reducing volatility within the energy mm -hmm. uh, sector as something which is super volatile, and it's mm -hmm. one of Bitcoin's main criticisms. It does the opposite in the way it supports the energy sector, which is kind of ironic. Can, can I can yeah. I push back on the kind of fud I get on this point? So when I show graphs like like Sean just showed. Um, I, I get uh, 
Well, here's, here's the analogy I get back, and some of it from energy experts too. Um, Bitcoin miners turn off. They did not give back power to the grid because they don't generate power, right? So they're, they're only giving back what they shouldn't have taken in the first place. So the analogy I get is something like, you know, someone holds a gun to your head and then they don't fire it. And you're supposed to be grateful for that. And that's... <laughs> I would be. I would be too. I would be. Thank you for not shooting me in the head. But it's like, the real problem is that you pulled a gun on me in the first place, right? So that's... Maybe the, you were a dick. Maybe I deserved it. Yeah. You got a warning. <laughs> <laughs> but I think you've kind of addressed what's missing in this picture, which is what would the grid have looked like without that base load demand, without that buyer of first resort stabilizing the price in the first place? Would we have had the same amount of generation uh, that we do have if we hadn't had Bitcoin there in the first place. So there's like Well, possibly, but it would have been more expensive because you right. would have had to have more investment and you would have to have more build out. You wouldn't have had the same incentive to build because the price of the price on the bottom end would have been lower. Like Bitcoin's putting a floor under price that wouldn't have been there without Bitcoin. But they would still have had to build out the amount of pennant power generation that the grid needed. They wouldn't have just said, okay, well, we just won't build it and we'll just have some rolling blackouts. You would hope not, but my assumption is that just energy would be more expensive. You definitely need generation, right? So yeah. what Bitcoin mining is not is, you know, power generation, right? So it's, but, you know, and I've heard you mention this before as well, Troy, it's like, you know, what it allows you to do is it allows you to really overbuild out that renewables base. So instead of having, you know, for example, like, um, there's a term about like a, a, a wind or a solar farm has a capacity factor. And so the capacity factor means that like if a wind has a capacity factor of 30%, it means that on average, a hundred megawatt facility will be producing 30 megawatts. There's sometimes it's producing 80 and sometimes it's producing four, right? And very rarely is it zero, but like that's the capacity factor, right? So like for a grid to be very much mostly wind and solar, is that you need to kind of build it for that lowest capacity factor, right? And so there's got to be other resources. Like this is, you know, I feel very strongly that it's an and statement about like you need nuclear, you need wind, you need solar, you need, uh, you know, other types of, you know, uh, technologies uh, to do that. But for, for building out like a wind and solar, if the capacity factor is, you know, 5%, well, you need to do a 20x on the total capacity just to serve that, right? And if you do that, you know, what happens is that like, there's gonna be days where there's lots of wind and solar and you can have an example of like a grid that has uh, 100 gigawatts of demand for easy math. And there's some days that you have, you know, 700 gigawatts of wind and solar, right? So like you need a buyer to, to take all that excess, right? Of some base bid that otherwise would just be being, being curtailed, right? And so like, you know, what mining can do and these kind of really flexible loads is it can be that buyer, that consumer that only consumes those cheap megawatts and allows you to overbuild those wind and solar resources that, you know, so you take away Bitcoin mining. And there are other technologies that are coming up too, kind of like hydrogen electrolysis and kind of other kind of uh, mobile use cases. But you take away those kind of, you know, those end markets for flexible power, you know, you you essentially don't create the signal of price that gives enough of a return for these uh, wind and solar producers to build more, right? And so it doesn't happen, right? So this is kind of what Bitcoin's doing is it's saying, we're, we're always a bid and it's always above zero, right? And prices can be negative quite often. So there's a, a new option that's saying, well, I'd rather sell it for a dollar using, uh, you know, call it in 20 years from now, somebody using an S9 and getting a dollar, right? Which is better than a, a negative price. And 
that's a that's a good thing. So we talk about ERCOT a lot. That obviously comes up, but is this happening on any other grids? Any other parts? Sorry, of the the grid. Um, it is. Um, I'm just thinking about kind of where to go with that. Troy, it's just kind of like there's like the the 20 year forwards, and then also the kind of pretty fascinating. I would love it if you could share that. Okay. Um, so, Danny, I just sent a, a one that was like the latest deck number two. Yeah. So the end of the year just you know pass and receive broker marks to get kind of what is the uh, the cost of power on a you know twenty year forward strip. So if you're in a competitive wholesale market um, and beyond, there's other markets that are not just competitive wholesale markets, but there's a price of power for what they expect that price to be over a twenty year period, and it's based on the supply and demand in that market. Mm-hmm. From left to right is where power is cheapest to most expensive. And so this is essentially all of the, uh, the majority of the different uh, power markets in the uh, United States. On the left is uh, SPP, which is Southwest Power Pool, which is just above uh, ERCOT. And then it goes ERCOT. Uh, there's PGM, which is up in the Mid-Atlantic. MISO is in the, the central U.S. Uh, and then CAISO and, and, and New York CAISO up in the Northeast and Mid-Sea, which is in the Pacific. And so you can see that on the far left... You know, so where should Bitcoin mining go, right? Like, so pretend you're going to go buy an iPhone, right? And the iPhone costs you, uh, on average, a tenure, we'll call it $35 in SPP, but it costs you over at WEC Mitzi uh, $90. That's a big difference, right? And so miners are going to gravitate to where the power is lowest cost. Yeah. And so what's really neat about this is, you know, where this a lot of this red exists is that it's, you know, pretty much right over top of where the largest wind resources are and solar resources that they kind of match out, right? Because this is causing kind of like the, the prices to be lower for times where they can be negative, but they can still have those high prices. But like, this is a scan of kind of like, what does it look like in the US? And if you're a miner, like, where should you be kind of going towards? Hmm. My gut would say, well, the network, the energy grid would want you to go to the right to help reduce the price where electricity is most expensive but for the mine themselves they want to go to the left because that's where they get the cheapest prices so, so i'd actually kind of think about it a little different is okay. that like um they don't want them going to the high priced area right because power prices are already high and so they call it like grip power grids don't want miners consuming power scarce uh it's right. because it's scarce oh right. so but but could the miners go there to help build out those sections so they could go there and to provide the same flexibility and some of the kind of characteristics of the swiss army knife yeah but unfortunately, the power prices are so expensive that if they can go some other place and provide those same services and have a lower cost. Yeah. So you can think about these markets as saying they're attracting the miners because yeah. they have a lower price. And, and actually, like um, since they have lower prices, usually they're in markets with lots of wind and solar. So there's usually a larger market for the demand response because right. of the volatility that's happening throughout the day. Okay, that makes sense. And so like, you kind of think about like you know the evolution of mining where I think that seven years ago, like if you're setting up mining, you're, you're setting up as close to your house as possible, right? So you're doing it in your house on your laptop. Yeah. And then like you go to that two megawatt container industrial park that's in your city because it's not really known about all the prices everywhere. And it's just, it's a project that's close by, right? And so now that we're getting to these very uh, large industrial scale that, and they're realizing kind of the Swiss Army knife has many applications and can be monetized in different ways in different areas, and it's being drawn now to the right price signal. So we're seeing this natural shift that they're being located in these areas where there's lots of wind and solar. So like, even though, you know, like um, 
folks are saying, well, Bitcoin mining should be you know, heavily renewables for their sourcing. And miners are saying, that's all we can afford, <laughs> right? Like we, we, we can't afford fossil fuel generation because that's more expensive, right? So it's just kind of a natural fit that these miners are going to be based on kind of areas where there's lots of renewables because the power price are going to be lower. There'll be other revenue streams from demand response. So it's just a natural fit to them. They're not going to be defiant and say, no way, I'm going to go to the expensive place and I'm going to ex- consume the fossil fuels and I'm going to go out of business. <laughs> is, is there a particular risk whereby if the accelera- if this accelerated, if the grid started to adopt Bitcoin miners as part of their uh, part, part of them um, quite rapidly, and then if Adam Wright was super successful in uh, using Bitcoin miners to flare off methane in landfills, and you know if uh, the uh, oil sector started to use it a lot more for glass flaring, there there would be a highly disproportionate amount of the hash rate here in the US that introduce its own risk, especially if you know I saw recently the whole of the US went into a deep freeze we could see a significant amount of the network go offline and that maybe would slow down. Okay, this I understand your point of security, but that would maybe slow down the Bitcoin network. I don't think slowing down would be a concern. Um, but, it, but it is because but what when, happens when, is when a particular amount of hash rate goes offline, the finding of new blocks slower, sl- sure. is slower and but, can be significant. But if slower. we look at, like, say, the China ban, that was an unbelievable traumatic event where almost half the hash rate tripped offline. Blocks weren't terribly slow. You know what I mean? We didn't have a problem of congestion. I, I, I expected it. I thought, oh my God, you know, like block space is going to be scarce and we're going to have a problem here. Like, eh, it, I don't remember what the block times were, but it was like 16 minute block time instead of 10. Okay. Until, okay. you know what I mean? Big correct? deal. Yeah. Okay. Fair, fair. So I wasn't, but, but it does pose a security risk, obviously, and a risk and a vulnerability to, 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 to regulatory capture. I mean, if the, if the treasury department wants to enforce, um, let's say miners in the U S with an executive order, like, sorry, you can't process, uh, transactions that, that come from this address, you know, that's touched North Korea. It, it, you know, if, if we have enough concentration of hash rate in the U.S. and uh, setting aside issues of federalism and legal issues, right, then that's a that's a vulnerability and that's an attack vector. So, is there a, essentially a fifty-one percent geographic attack? Well, I would think of it in terms of a nation-state attack, yeah. right? Because it's the legal it's a legal attack, and so it's you know, if there's mining in Alaska and Hawaii, which there's not going to be because it's super expensive power, but. It would apply there just as well. And it would apply to U.S. allies that are close enough that we can lean on them as yeah. well. So the question, is like, as a Bitcoiner, I, I don't want hash rate that's U.S. controllable yeah. coming to 51%. And it's hard to say what it is because geopolitically that's going to be shifting all the time. Yeah. Right. But that's why there's this little part of me that when, like, mining flares up in some area that the, the U.S. has no control over, because they're at odds, I'm like, okay, that's kind of good. <laughs> well, that, that's a uh, that's a problem with the the concentration of Bitcoin activity in the U.S., which it is. I mean, we we come out here to make our show because this is where the majority of the activity is and conversations are. And that's not right. to say it's entirely here. And you know, we have done sprints in Europe. We're planning to go down to Africa and do a sprint. I've been out to South America. It's not to say there isn't elsewhere, but there is a deep concentration of activity interest uh, happening here in the U.S. So perhaps, Troy, you need to be going on a world tour and well, I think, selling you know, this. I look at this chart, I mean, a couple of reactions I have to it. First of all, you know, what you said about Bitcoin stabilizing price, 
Exactly right. And if you if you think in your head, Bitcoin's a huge industry. It's not. It's got five billion in annual revenue. But if it were huge, what would happen? Well, we'd like fill up that red side and we'd push those prices up just a little bit, right, on the bottom end, and uh, and sta- stabilize these prices. And and it, the same goes worldwide, right? If a whole mining starts pouring into the U.S., well, guess what? We've got cheap power elsewhere in the world. Mm-hmm. There's super cheap power in in Morocco. There's super cheap power in Northern Africa. That's what Europe is trying to tap into with, with uh, you know, uh, super long distance transmission. Because <laughs> you can generate solar for one and a half cents a, a kilowatt hour in North, in North Africa. Australia has a lot of cheap power, right? So there's the, this is the US version. Mm-hmm. There's a global version of this chart. And I want to kind of back up to the FUD. I think the FUD is, or some of the FUD around energy is coming from a, a misplaced heuristic in how we think about conservation. Uh, think about power as a scarce good. Like in that storm, it was scarce. In general, we're having you know, an energy crisis in Europe. Yep. Power is scarce. The, the simple heuristic that we come up with, the rule of thumb, and maybe you know, in the US it's a carryover from, I don't know, Puritanism or whatever, is like waste not, want, want not. You know, don't waste a precious resource. And it's easy to think in those simplistic terms. And you see that. You see that on Twitter, even from energy people. Like Bitcoin's using a precious resource. It's using a scarce resource. This is the last thing we need to be doing in an energy crisis. I hear that a lot, right? When you look at this chart and you think about it extended over the world, and you also think about it extended over times of day, right? Because Bitcoin is also, or because electricity is also more expensive at some times rather than others in the day. You have a kind of 3D heat map, <laughs> time and space, of, of price. And there's radical discrepancies across that. And that you realize that what Bitcoin's going to do is kind of even that up. Electricity is not scarce. It's not like a commodity like other, other commodities that are scarce, like, like water in a, in, a, in a drought, where if you don't use it, it, it you're saving it from some, for some other use. It's use it or lose it. And it is radically scarce and radically abundant at different places and times. And so your simple heuristic of don't use a precious resource, waste not, want not, doesn't apply to electricity. And in fact, it's something like the opposite. Like we need more users of electricity where it's overly abundant in order to provide revenue for those, for those generators. And the, the updated version uh, of the don't waste precious resources heuristic that we need to embrace is don't waste precious resources where and when they're scarce. Like if Mm -hmm. if you are um, using tremendous amounts of electricity for uh, recreational activity during the winter storm, you're a dick and you shouldn't (laughs) do that. Right. But if you're doing it when, when power is abundant on the grid and there's negative pricing, like good for you. Right. So there's a, just a disconnect to me in the way the fundamental tools we have for thinking about it in policy and media and the reality that, you know, you begin to see once you just look at this chart and you're like, well, is there anything wrong with using, you know, power over in the, uh, over on the left side? It's like, no, that'd be great. Yeah. And you, and also kind of, um, we haven't touched on like, there's also the curtailments. There's, there's prices of kind of being negative and then there's curtailments because there's just nowhere for it to go. Right. And so like, as you know, an example of like, you know, wind and solar, the wind speed and sun quality aren't distributed equally across the globe. 
there's some really great spots where there's this perpetual resource that you can tap into and you put a panel in that location, it's going to produce more power than if you put a panel somewhere else, right? And so like in West Texas is like there's some areas where there's a really amazing sun quality in West Texas, but it's amazing for anybody that puts a panel there, right? And so there's been a lot of build out of solar in the past few years. And I think the number is something uh, to check for sure, but it's something about 10% or 15% of all the solar this year was curtailed, right? Just because you you couldn't put it out into the grid, there was nowhere for it to go. So it was just, it was spilled. So the kind of back again is like, you know, is the best option to waste it or is the best option to put it to some type of use, right? And to kind of also create this price floor that can be put there. So yeah, just a, I think a point that is not, um, really well understood and it's just like that you know curtailments are very real and those curtailments are not happening in uh in areas where there's not a lot of wind and solar right they're happening specifically in those areas where there's a ton of the resource but just not enough demand at that time in that location but even then you know you know that same resource you know there could be very high demand at some point and that's the point of saying like during those scarcity times you know the price signal says the price is high it's above what a break even for mining would be the signal says turn off Right. And so, um, yeah, so I think that's a, a important part too. On the one, one last thing about this chart that this is, that is interesting to me is that, you know, we're in this kind of religious war about sources of power. Part of the rabbit hole, part of the fun of being in this energy space is that people have these deep, deep convictions about forms of electricity. I mean, it's amazing, right? It's a weird religion, but there are many religions actually, because there are many tribes. Um, but, you know, Sean is showing, in a way, these incentives that don't care about your religion. Yep. And it's like, where? Okay, where is power cheapest? That's where Bitcoin mine is going to go. Well, it's where there's wind. It's the Great Plains. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a strip up and down the U.S. And if this, I mean, of course, these are 20 year power forwards. Who knows how accurate these predictions are? And we could have technological breakthroughs that change it. We, you know, a number of things could interfere with this. Mm-hmm. chart but uh, if this holds up it's like you know yeah like john said you're not going to be <laughs> insisting on your religion to go to one part of the country or the world you're going to bitcoin mining is going to go uh to the place where power is cheapest because if you don't do that um y- you won't survive well that's the same for customers with people in the uk at the moment with energy prices so high i mean the government's just announced another massive subsidy for uh companies for their energy bills they don't care about the religion now. They want to be able to heat their home mm-hmm. at a price they can yeah. afford. So I think that, that works. Again, it comes down to incentives, though. Uh, the other thing that's been niggling in the back of my mind is there is so much opportunity for Bitcoin mining, but the network has to be big enough and the price has to be high enough to be able to compensate enough miners to build out these projects. And that's, a, that's like a really important part of this. It, this only works with the Bitcoiner a uh, high enough price. And, you know, every time there's a halving, that's going to change the economics of these projects. And so, you know, there's almost like this Bitcoin mining fixes this, fixes it thing at the moment for certain industries, certain mm-hmm. parts of the grid, you know, Adam Wright's projects, but the economics has to work out. And that's a tricky part. So I think that um, I want to come back to this after, which was like... Um, this energy part is just a, a component of the bill, yeah. right? And there's more pieces, so I want to touch on that after. Um, sorry, what was your question? Well, so so the Bitcoin network distributes, yes, the, the what is it? Is it 800 Bitcoin a day or is it 900, 900. now? 900 now. It's about a $5 billion annual industry. Yeah, but, uh, so 
it can support $5 billion of activity, let's That's say. Right. If the price doesn't go up in the next halving, it can support $2.5 billion. Yeah. So the network needs to continue to grow and continue to be able to provide, distribute revenue to the miners. And so I don't know, like with all the projects that everyone wants to do, I don't know if it if it needs a $10 billion network or a $20 billion network in terms of minor revenues. And that's an important piece of work that, that needs to be done. So, so I think the projects are more economic now than they were a year ago. Yeah. Right. And, you know, the math would work out that if, um, and it's because machine costs have come down so much. So I, when I was here last time on the show, I think the, the S19 miner was about $100 a terahash. And uh, so to buy one megawatt of S19 miners was about $3.5 million just for one megawatt of, of miners. And so if you were to take those and say, okay, my CapEx spend on this is, is 3.5 million and I need to recover my CapEx. And so say you take the project is four years, right? And you're gonna be running every single hour. So 8,760 hours times four years. What you need to do is you need to recover $100 per megawatt just to cover your CapEx spend on your, on your machines. And then you need to make your profits on like what was the actual value of the mining versus kind of the, the power price. So we're now in this new environment where the machine costs are not $100 per terahash, they are somewhere around 10, right? And so that $10 a terahash means that that $3.5 million is now only 350,000, right? And so now if you think about like amortizing that on the life of project is instead of needing to get $100 every hour, right? You only need to get 10, right? So going back to that, you know, 3.5 million, if you had 50% uptime with a three and a half million dollar spend, you need to get an extra $200, right? And so now you come to this environment that says, well, it's 350,000, and you need to get $10, that's no problem, right? 50% uptime, okay, now I need 20, that's no problem, right? And so now what's really unique is just with this hardware cost, a ton of these projects are penciling out in the current economics because if you find an area with like low cost energy and you're really you know, optimizing for kind of your, your power usage and doing a whole bunch of strategies with low cost power, it's like, you're doing better now in this environment with the new cost machines that you were a year ago, right? But each halving still puts pressure mm -hmm. on the economics mm -hmm. if the price itself hasn't doubled. Yeah. And to push back on that is that like, so the Bitcoin mining break even is approximately $85 right now. So call it 80. Um, if we doubled the amount of hash rate on the network, that means that the break even would be 40. And then the the global procurement of hashes where power needs to go to the lowest cost areas with efficient machines are going to find new crevices, right? And they're going to have lower uptime, but they're going to find the cheapest power on the planet, right? So nothing changes. You just doubled your hash rate and you can make this $40 environment work, but you got to, you got to find new spots to, to make that happen. So I'm tying into that, the having, right? It's just like in the having the economics change. Well, you know, like these projects can still pencil out if like the hardware is a different type of uh, cost environment, but it comes down to like finding these kind of low cost powers and still make them work. This show is brought to you by Wasabi, who I am using to make sure I keep my Bitcoin private. Now with the release of Wasabi 2.0, Bitcoin privacy is now effortless as a wallet has introduced privacy by default. Rather than having to choose to coin join, this can be done automatically. So you just need to receive your Bitcoin, wait for the coin join, and then you can spend freely. All the magic happens automatically in the background, which is a massive UX improvement. You do also get additional privacy through Tor integration into Wasabi, so you don't leak your IP address. There's also no more minimum denomination, so you can coin join any amount 
and there's no more change. So any amount you receive from a coin join is private. Privacy is something I've been taking a lot more seriously recently. And with Wasabi 2.0, this is so much easier. So if you want to find out more about this, please head over to wasabiwallet.io, which is W-A-S-A-B-I-W-A-L-L-E-T dot I-O. Next up today, we have Casa. Now, whether you've bought your first SATs or you're a Bitcoin pro, you need to protect your investment. And the only person that should be in charge of your Bitcoin and your financial freedom is you. And securing your Bitcoin, it doesn't have to be difficult because Casa makes it super easy. And getting started is simple. Just download the app, create an account, and enjoy a 30-day free trial. And if you need assistance, it's only a phone call away. And Cars has the best-in-class customer support and free online resources to support you. And I have been using Casa. I've been using their multi-sig for two years now. I absolutely love it. Now, it is time for you to take financial freedom into your own hands by self-custodying your Bitcoin so it can never be frozen without your consent. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Also, today we have Gemini, who I am using for buying and selling Bitcoin. But again, I'm only buying right now. We're hodlers. We've seen the bottom of the market. We've seen this through, right? Now, I've been using the Gemini app for buying the dips, but I also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. Both the app and the website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy. And Gemini has invested in building industry-leading security since day one. And Gemini are also running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD, which is G-E-M-I-N-I dot com forward slash WBD. The moratorium that's just been implemented in Canada on Bitcoin mining. Have you, seen, you must have seen this. Was it Canada or BC? Well, BC is BC. Canada. Sorry, yes, in Canada, but in, but in British Columbia. It's is, like Ireland, an is Ireland England? Huh? <laughs> Northern Ireland is. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Well, BC is in Canada, right? It is. It's one of our provinces. Yeah. Yep. Bedford is in, in, in England. Yep. It's not its own. Does it want to be an independent state? Uh, British Columbia? Yeah. It, it is a, a, a province, but doesn't want to be outside of Canada. No, exactly. Yeah. You nearly got me there. Yeah. They, I, I read an 18 moratorium now, and that's a moratorium on new miners coming in, right? What do we know about this? I don't, I haven't deeply, you know, uh, look, look, looked into it, but I, um, you know, I, I think it's, uh, I mean, just looking at their rationale, it's, um, it's spillover from the New York moratorium and the general kind of moral panic. You know, it creates a it's it's using a scarce resource. It's creating um, demand for 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 power, which is expensive. And, and we want to study it. We want to see what its impacts are. And I think, like, sure, go ahead. I'm not really troubled by this. It's a global market and hash rate. It's one province of Canada. Um, it, it it means. It means that, I mean, there aren't a whole lot of new mining operations that are firing up right now in this market. Uh, existing ones are just trying to survive. Um, it, it means they won't get those for a while and then they'll do a study. I think when they do a study and they get into the weeds, they're going to be surprised uh, and, and they'll, they'll be pleasantly surprised. And I have to back up to the New York moratorium and talk about that, which I won't know more about just briefly. Mm. You know, the New York moratorium was, I talked to a number of lawmakers in New York just called up offices and said, you know, I'm, I'm at the Bitcoin Policy Institute. 
and I'm happy to talk about these issues. And I got, I had a number of conversations. And what was so fascinating was I think um, both Bitcoiners and advocates of Bitcoin within the legislature in New York, and also the opponents were both sort of, uh, they were both casting this legislation as a moratorium on Bitcoin mining. Right? It was just like a moratorium on Bitcoin mining. When you look into what the actual legislation was, no uh, renewed permits for existing generators that are increasing the amount of behind meter mining if those generators are fossil. So you can't increase the size of your mine behind the meter if you're uh, Greenwich, let's say, on a gas plant. You also couldn't create a new gas plant with, uh, with mining facilities and get permitted. Um, but it meant nothing for existing mining and it meant nothing for mining on grid power, even if that grid power is heavily, um, heavily thermal. And it meant nothing for behind meter mining on renewables. Right. So it was actually very narrowly targeted legislation and it comes with a study. So looking deeply into it, you're kind of like, eh, shrug, you know, BC is like a step up there. There, it's a step up because it's a moratorium on new mining. But I have the same kind of shrug response like, OK, you'll just learn about it later. And you're and in New York. The main thing that came out of it was because everybody hyped the actual legislation on both sides when the legislation was actually signed and the people who penned it did the rounds of talk shows and interviews um, and the people who opposed it bemoaned what had happened, it it sends a huge symbolic symbol like New York is not the place to do business, Yeah, right? And that was the message that got sent even though the the legislation was actually, I think, toothless and harmless. And as Margot uh, has pointed out, she wrote a nice report for this on the BPI website. Um, the state already had the authority um, to deny these permits in any case. So it, it was really purely symbolic. Not only did it take a, a very small bite out of future Bitcoin mining, uh, but that bite could have been taken anyway by existing authority under New York law. You know, so it, purely symbolic gesture. Here's a little bit more than symbolic but ultimately inconsequential since I doubt there were many, if any, serious plans for mining in VC that got canceled because of this. I don't think there's a bunch of miners saying, oh my God. Mm. <laughs> so that's my, that's my perspective, it's kind of a shrug. Okay, uh, I mentioned I did uh, two interviews last week regarding nuclear, one with a, uh, a guy who'd worked on subs and aircraft carriers. Uh, he'd been involved in uh, the the kind of maintenance and well, what would you he, say? he was like maintenance safety. I think he yeah, worked all safety. through by the nuclear industry. He was involved in Fukushima and helping with mm -hmm. that. Um, and he discussed the dangers of nuclear power and how they're very, very limited these days. Uh, very low risk now. Uh, he talked about um, uh, the low number of deaths from nuclear. But I think yeah. it was the forty-six at Chernobyl mm -hmm. and none at Three Mile Island none at Fukushima. Um, he talked about waste. And then we had somebody came on to talk about these generation four smaller reactors. Um, and one of the things that came out of that for me was like, well, uh, nuclear is a significant answer to energy issues. Um, if there was no green agenda against nuclear, would we even be investing so much in wind and solar? Um, so to put a, a close to on the BC Hydro thing, just a, a quick in insert, is that... Um, this is a stretch of analogy, but like you can think of like uh, 
capitalism and communism, and maybe it's better to say capitalism and capitalism light, is that like there's competitive wholesale markets like ERCOT, PGMISO, and in those markets, miners can participate in demand response programs. There's a price signal for being how they can be dispatched. In British Columbia, it's it's the grid is owned by the Crown, so BC Hydro, and there's no price signal, and there's no way for miners to react or to know to react, right? And so, like when you put a moratorium, it's because, you know, the market design wasn't really well suited for miners to give that flexibility to the grid operators, and where they could just be running as base loads. So just want to kind of uh, mm-hmm. share that there's like a there's very different kind of designs of power markets and how those markets are designed, you know, create the the behaviors, right? So okay. The system. Yeah. On the nuclear side, um, so I think that like <clears throat> if if nuclear was invented today, it would feel like the silver bullet, right? Just like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. Um, and I've messaged uh, before as I've had some concern about like mining and the importance of kind of, you know, communicating all the benefits and kind of putting good information out there that mining gets kind of branded the way that nuclear did. And it's really hard to rebrand nuclear because you're, you grow up thinking a certain way and it's really hard to to relearn those things. Um, and so kind of in that future state of like what this energy transition looks like, you know, I think it's again, an and statement. I think that like nuclear can play a big role. Uh, I'm not sure about like the, the technical characteristics of flexibility, if it's a pure base load, similar to kind of how nuclear plants are now, which means you have a base layer of energy, but you can't ramp it. So you still need to have some flexibility. They can ramp. Can they? Yeah. Yeah. That's Very one of cool. the things I've learned about nuclear recently. It's like they do have ramping capability. They just prefer not to because because why why load follow when you could um, you know pr- produce all the time mm-hmm. like the new ones mean that, yeah the new ones okay yeah, yeah. Um, I had some experience in Ontario where they'd had like the the units were called Bruce nuclear power plants and they just and they they could ramp them but it just went from say 800 megawatts to 400 for five hours and ramp up but there was no load following. So I think that, yeah, I think that um, I believe that if nuclear was just being rolled out now, um, it'd be part of the solution, a big part of the solution. Uh, I'm not sure if what the impacts would be on, say, the, the subsidies that exist right now, because a lot of the build out of wind and solar is due to uh, this federal subsidy, subsidies called a production tax credit investment tax credit. But that is because there's a goal to move towards uh, carbon friendly mm-hmm. I would have considered carbon-friendly uh, power sources, but uh, they are. My understanding is that uh, solar and wind is quite complicated. Not only complicated in building up the infrastructure, but actually complicated in the variability of, of energy coming from those sources. Whereas uh, nuclear is quite consistent, and the resources required in terms of like land mass, etc., is, is very limited. So I'm just wondering, I'm pretty sure there are certain locations where if you only needed a small amount of energy, it might be more suitable for wind or solar. But if it was purely on the economics and, mm-hmm. and building out this, I'm not sure we'd have these massive wind and solar farms if you could just have a nuclear plant. You know, I All think, subsidies being equal. I think it's, um, there's, it's complicated. I, I, I tried to dig into this and I'm not at the bottom of this yeah, rabbit yeah. hole yet, right? But I've been talking to people and um, I've talked to the, the people who are kind of anti-nuclear in a sophisticated way, point out, uh, as Austin Mitchell did on your show, yeah. that nuclear requires subsidy in the form of insurance. No private insurer insures a nuclear plant worldwide. So you, despite the fact that these are safe, there's still there's still the dependence on government in that respect. They're heavily regulated 
and they must be really because they're dangerous. I think we should all acknowledge that. And um, that means they're one of the most centralized and bureaucratically governed forms of forms of power. Um, the nuclear projects vary in how well they deliver, but mostly they're way over budget and way over time. So they, they take twice as long as they say they're going to take and they deliver power that's twice as expensive as they said it would be, right? And when you push into the reason why that's so, you get into this like no true Scotsman type argument. Well, like, we just haven't done it right. Um, every one nuclear engineer told me every nuclear project is bespoke. Like we imagine you're trying to build a building, but you use no prefabricated materials. The, there's no regulations like made for buildings there. You just have to go to the that spot, deal with the local politicians, like get all your raw materials and manufacture each part in a kind of one-off way and then assemble it with constant kind of feedback loops where you encounter more obstacles. That's what it's like to build a site, a nuclear plant. If we could make it more like Henry Ford, where we have assembly lines, we have a couple of designs for nuclear plants, depending on how they're sited, and we put the, put the pieces together in a, in a factory, um, and we have regulations that extend over larger regions, not just like a separate set of regulations in each state, but like multi-state coalitions that come together to kind of, uh, okay, I'm getting too far into the I understand reason. what you're saying, but, but we're coming but down to incentives there, there again. There are many, there, right, right, right now, it is really difficult and expensive, and these projects come in slowly and over budget. And, and part of the reason and part of the push for, for solar and, 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 and wind is like, you can put up a, you can put up solar panels with minimal government interference, with minimal um, mm. licensing, and you can make it happen within months. And if you if you want to build a nuclear plant, what are you talking? At least seven years, but maybe more. Like, I mean, people are like by the mid twenty thirties. When you read stories on nuclear, it's always by the mid twenty thirties, right? And then, well, this depends on how you feel about the urgency of climate action. But a lot of people are looking to move more like by twenty thirty. To, to, to shift the grid dramatically and that nuclear is not going to achieve that. So it might be, to answer your question, it might be that nuclear comes on in the mid 2030s in a big way if we're planning well and we've got a kind of period that we have to bridge where we are, where solar and wind are just cheap and abundant and we have a lot of uh, uh, problems that will go away with an advanced nuclear uh, grid. If you think about like wind and solar, another analogy is like the digital camera, right? So like when the digital camera first came out, like, you know, like how many ever megapixels it was, what was really kind of the constraint was the memory card, right? And just like how many pictures could you get on the memory card? And so you can think about like the digital camera is kind of like the wind and solar right now. It's just like you can produce, you know, an infinite amount of wind and solar, but you got to use it at exact times. I'll call that on your digital camera, like whatever you're consuming on the single screen, yeah. right? But if you want to store it, that's the challenge, right? And so like... You know, so they're advancing kind of these cameras, but you need to advance like your your memory card that could hold more storage and whatnot. So I think that like you know, we we observe what's in front of us, and it's really hard to kind of project out what five years would look like on something that's really fast emerging. Kind of like the example of Bitcoin mining of two megawatt containers, twenty seventeen, and here we are now, right? So like we're seeing kind of like this really large amount of energy storage that's coming to the grids. We're seeing a massive amount of like EV vehicles that are going into different uh, in different markets. Trying to do the math last night is that, uh, you know, my house consumes about 1.5 megawatt hours per month, which is about two kilowatt hours, uh, two kilowatt hours each hour. And so I have a, a Tesla and the storage and that's 100 kilowatts, 
right? So like there's enough storage in just my, my battery that can kind of store that. And so I think that like, again, it's like an and statement of saying, you know, I think that, you know, we, we look at this world where there's wind and solar and there's a challenge because we can't store it because it hasn't been kind of massively deployed. But it's like, what are all the different types of resources that can really help with that? And so mining is that flexible load that can consume the, the buyer of these megawatts nobody wants, providing a lot of the same ancillary services. But, you know, it's, it's also these batteries that are going to be coming on that I, I think kind of will help with kind of the renewable story that's the equivalent of that uh, uh, memory card growing in size. I mean, so much of the debate about nuclear is actually a debate about how fast storage will grow, yeah. right? It's, it's like, um, on the one pers- from the one perspective, you have um, and storage getting cheaper, and the growth of storage is just dramatic. Like, what's the projected storage growth in, in Texas? In there, the- there's 70 gigawatts in the queue, right? And- 70 gigawatts in the queue. That's insane. Um, but on, on, on the other hand, you have people pointing out that basically all of the lithium-ion storage that we have right now is equivalent to like one major pumped hydro facility that we built out in the 70s along with nuclear, right? And it's just tiny compared to what we need, especially, you know, storage works in a couple of ways. It works on a day, daily basis for fluctuations, but then it works on a seasonal basis um, for, for fluctuations in, in, in sun and in, in hydro. And, you know, lithium ions is not well suited for that, et cetera, et cetera, right? So the debate over nuclear becomes a debate about the prospects for storage technology. And you probably know there's like a gazillion a nutty and cool ideas for how to store energy. Um, talking to someone who was talking about storing it in the form of heat underground, a geothermalist, right? You can actually heat up salt underground and store it there for long periods of time. Um, and it's, it's, we, we're working on more than just lithium ion technology for storage, but yeah. basically this large amounts of super cheap, but intermittent unreliable energy is creating a massive incentive for storage at all scales and of all kinds. Mm-hmm. And and some of, anyway, some of these questions are just like, how does that technology play out over time? How does that market play out? I'd like to go through kind of that, the bill, the kind yeah. of the component there for, okay. so like you ever book a hotel and and the room rate's like 250 and then you go to the hotel and they've got like a resort charge, yeah, like Vegas. tax charge, like this. And you're Hold just on. like- This is all of America, by the way. <laughs> yeah. When you go to the store and you like go to a shop and you buy a t-shirt and it's like the t-shirt's $20 and you get there and it's like $30. Yeah. This is not something we have in the UK. Yeah. The VAT is included in the display price. Yeah. It's fucking, it really annoys you, doesn't it? Really, it's, I just never know what I'm paying for anything. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he's yeah. a prize, and then his, and and because it's different state to state, it's it's lottery. How much yeah. am I actually going to pay? Yeah, exactly. So this is kind of like your posted rate of a hotel, right. right? And like, but what is the actual amount on the bill? It's like dependent on whatever region you go in. They've got a whole bunch of different adders, right? But this is kind of like you know the big part of of, of the bill. Um, so these are kind of like the uh, the components of. Uh, the hotel bill, if you will, right? And so I, I use analogies like a bicycle and like the all-in delivery energy cost is like the bicycle. The, the energy is the frame of the bike, right? So these are all the pieces of, you know, costs that are associated with that. Uh, the wheels get you essentially the, the power to where your location. And, and the then, rent seeking at the end. And those are reflectors. Those are optional. Sometimes places put a lot of reflectors on. Sometimes they have none, right? And then there's also state and local tax. So this is in Texas, Right, so these are the building blocks, and so there's the capacity charges. There's no capacity charge, and this is a big number in places like uh, MISO, PGM. So ERCOT is the only market without a capacity charge. So call that like a resort. Why? Um, because they're energy only, which means that they encourage high prices. Right, so that way that there'll be a response that high prices is the cure for high prices, 
and then generation will come on so that it can actually achieve that the high price. Smart. Which is great for mining because you just turn off for the high price, yeah. which means that you're avoiding this capacity payment by not consuming those high price energy. Um, and then there's no wrecks. And the reason for that is that in some regions where there's not a, wind, a lot of wind and solar, they need to prime the pump. And so there's a cost that they need to have people procuring wrecks to make it economic in an area. But Texas has so much wind and solar. And this is, uh, I didn't adjust the fonts, but I can tell the story on this, is that this is like a, pretend you're a Bitcoin miner that is uh, consuming energy around the clock, baseload, not participating in any demand response. What I did is I took like the five-year forward price of energy, which is $45 a megawatt in West Texas. And then I got $0 for demand response. And then these are some of the price adders with the energy. The transmission side, the $6, and there's $8 for your distribution. And then in Texas, the tax is 8.25%. So like if you're a miner in Texas, consuming baseload, not providing any value back to the grid, and so call this a steel plant or a Bitcoin miner. Um, so you're, you know, again, that sticker price was $45, but all the other pieces added on came to, to 72.50, right? Which is quite a bit different than just that number, right? Yeah. If you go to the next one. So I think, that, I think this is the really big theme that we're going to see that's kind of like, what I observed in the power generation space, you know, when I started in 2000, which was all these generators came from an environment where there was a rate payer, which was a customer. You got to pass through costs. So there wasn't a lot of efficiencies that were kind of tuned into because you weren't rewarded for being efficient because you could just pass your costs on to the customer. And then deregulation happened around 2000. And it took about five years for those generation companies to start behaving exactly the way they should be, meaning that from a gas plant and power price are high, I can actually sell my gas for higher than I can actually sell my power for. So I'm going to sell my gas and I'm not going to run the power. So they, they're optimizing around the efficiency of the, of the generation asset. So what this chart shows is this is a Bitcoin miner in Texas that's going to be that efficient power generator that's going to do 95% uptime and do a whole bunch of behavior shifts to kind of match with kind of what the price signal is being received from the market. And so this has uh, $45 for the energy. I put $10 for a turndown, which means over the past four years in Texas, um, if you turned down for the top 5% of hours, your bill would have been 60% less on that $45, huh. just for 5% hours. If you strip out the winter storm URI, which was a very big outlier because there's some big numbers in there, um, it's 35%. So I put out a number here that's like $10 uh, for a turndown. Uh, $5 is the demand response to this being able to participate in some ancillary service programs in Texas. When a Bitcoin miner has a very high break-even, so call it $400, the demand response number is a bigger number because they're always participating in demand response and they're running more hours. But when mining's at a lower price, they're going to shift that into kind of turning up and turning down when prices are uh, above the break-even. So there'll be a, a less amount of demand response and, and more on this, this turndown. If you go to the cost of delivering energy, is that there's the bottom box would have been the distribution. So in Texas, you can actually connect at transmission voltage which is the equivalent of like um, uh, transmission voltage is like the, the highways, the interstate highways, and distribution would be like side streets. So if you're connecting at the highway at the, 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 uh, the transmission voltage, you don't have to pay for all the costs associated with the, like the side streets and, and the lower voltage. And in Texas, there's a way that miners can actually change their output during the summer months where um, the cost they're going to pay for their transmission next year is based on what was their average demand during the 50-minute coincident peaks, the highest demand points in the month of June, July, August, September. And if they turn down, say, from 100 megawatts to 2 megawatts, that means for next year they're only going to pay for 2 megawatts of transmission. 
because they're able to avoid those quints and peaks, which is helping with the grid to kind of bring down that demand at certain times. And then your tax went to you know $2.50. So this is now showcasing... It's nearly half price. Right, to $39. Yeah. And then the last slide. So this is important is that never before has there been the ability to have a price signal to attract load to come to a location, hmm. right? So previously, like there's, it's called nodal pricing in all these different markets. And that's the exact price a generator would get paid for injecting power to that location. And so, uh, you know, if you're going to build a power plant somewhere, you look at this kind of heat map of where is power expensive and where's the load. And you say, well, I'm going to go locate in one of these areas where price is expensive. I've got access to a pipeline, so I'm going to build a power plant there. The way load has been built in the past has been if you're uh, in Texas, there's four major zones. And in West Texas, is like wherever you are located in West Texas, they'll use the average price across all those nodes, and that's your power price, right? And it was a zonal pricing because there was nobody that was going to be moving specifically to like a location of a cheap power price. So post-Winter Storm Uri, so kind of what was an outcome in the learnings of Winter Storm Uri and what came after that, they realized that, you know, as in other markets, is the more renewables that you bring on is you need to have a market redesign that allows for more rules and silly services to provide grid reliability. And so one of those rules in Texas that they're pushing through is they want to change it so instead of having a zonal price where you're just the average of everything, they want to be able to have it at the nodal price. And why is that important? <laughs> it's because if there's a wind farm or a solar facility that's located in some area and the price they're receiving is negative $4 right, for their node, but the entire average across like the West uh, load zone was like 50. You could be located right beside that solar plant, relieving that issue, but paying $50 and they're getting paid negative two. Hmm. So now what this is going to do is now miners get to look at this heat map. If you're a control load in, in Texas in, in transmission voltage is that you can now start to go to exactly where that point is, right? So you're looking at the heat map and say, okay, well, there's a whole bunch of wind and solar over here. I'm going to build right there because now I'm going to have nodal pricing that's going to drive down my cost because the signal's there that you can actually go to those areas. That's amazing. Right. And so this one, I just kind of dropped like the, the $45 down to 41 because you're not paying that average of the load zone. You're getting specifically at that node. Right. And so you can kind of see this now goes to, to 36. So it's kind of, you know, zooming out and kind of where we are in the cycle is that, so I believe that like um, in the last bull run is that there's a lot of, there was two price signals going on for miners, right? And the public miners were getting the big price signal. And so the public miners are getting a price signal that said, if you have Bitcoin on your balance sheet and you're building hash rate, we're going to treat you like a, a gold stock that's like a 3x bull, right? And so mine Bitcoin, buy machines, keep building this. And so the equity values of these Bitcoin miners was just very high. And so they could actually ignore some of the price signal that's actually happening on the grid because... The market is saying Bitcoin's more important than kind of maybe doing things perfectly with kind of how you're interfacing with the grid. And so then we all know what happened after that is like they got slaughtered, right? And so that that message isn't there anymore. <laughs> that signal's gone of saying, don't just mine at all costs and don't just kind of, uh, you know, keep Bitcoin on balance sheet. And, you know, there's now it's about like being profitable companies. And so now we're seeing this shift of those saying like, Miners are now starting to behave like those power generators that came like around 2005 that says, oh shit, you know, we can't operate like we used to. 
we need to find every different tool in our kit to kind of change our behaviors, align with what the market signal is. And so our competitive advantage that we need to, to, to gain is through how we're operating, as a, how we're actually running as an operator, right? Because if you think about in North America, if I go buy a, a stock of like a, of a power company, right? I'm not taking a speculative bet on the price of power. I'm, I'm gauging on them as an operator and their ability to sign great contracts and to deliver on those. Yeah. And so I feel like we're in that shift that's happening in the mining space that's saying, you need to be solid operators and you do everything you can to actually to control these. And so that goes back to that map of like where the prices are, are cheap is like, go to those areas that prices are cheap, find out the programs that you can have maximum participation in and develop these uh, optimization strategies for really kind of uh, getting maximum value of your site. And it's very similar to like, <laughs> I thought last night with Troy's like, it's completely deja vu of like, you know, what I experienced with in 2000 when the power markets were happening. Last point is just like, you know, the option value of these of the miners is very similar to like the option value of a power generator. So if I'm a power generator and I've got a $35 break-even price and I say, well, I'm going to sell power tomorrow at the clearing price as long as it's above my break-even. If that price comes out at $50 for the next day, right? It's like, okay, great. It's 35 and 50. I can lock off uh, $15 because yep. I've sold the $50 power. You step into the day the next time, uh, into the real-time market. And so there's a whole bunch of wind that's online and demanding to come in. And so instead of the price being $50, it's 10, right? Well, the generator is like, well, I guess I'm just not gonna generate, right? And I collect the difference between my $50 I sold in the day ahead and the $10. So I'm gonna get paid to not do anything because I didn't need to show up. <laughs> so this can happen now in mining, right? So like, yeah. think about a miner, <laughs> but the reverse, right? And these strategies are, are going to happen, and this is what we're doing at Lansium, is that you go into the market and say, well, I'm going to buy power for the next day uh, as long as it's below my, my break-even for mining. So say I'm going to buy as long as it's below $70, I'm going to buy that. And so then the next day, clear at $50 the end, and it's like, oh, great. You know, I, I'm mining, and I can lock on what my gain's going to be. And then in real time, so say the prices go to, to 200 right? It's like, well, it doesn't make sense for me to mine anymore, right? I'm actually just going to turn off. And I'm going to collect the difference between like what I actually bought the power of 50 and where it's down to 200. And I've just now been able to achieve that because I have an actual physical asset that's acting like a real option that's deriving this additional value that if you hadn't had that mining, that you wouldn't be able to uh, achieve that. So I know that's quite complex and mm. kind of deep, but it's really kind of like the same uh, lens of like these power generation assets are, are real options and the same thing for these mining facilities. And I think that, you know, what really... <laughs> Uh, caused me to, you know, when I left my company I worked for, it's called Transelta Power Generation Company. And it was like this total deja vu of just kind of seeing kind of what this Bitcoin mining facilities were and kind of what we'd experienced the past 20 years with these power generation assets. And it was identical. And just, you could see the path about, you know, how do you become like a solid operator and having like the, the capabilities to actually get the, the most value of these sites. So that's kind of, I think the trend and the path of what we're going to see in this mining space here in the next, you know, call it like one to two years. Can I ask you a tricky question regarding Lansium? Yeah. Patents. <laughs> the reason yes. I bring it up is you mentioned Lansium there, and yeah. last time you were on the show, uh, it was the only thing that came up, and it came up a little bit. Yeah. Um, and whether it's really within the ethos of Bitcoin to yeah. have patents in a, a network, which is really an open source network. Mm -hmm. Is that something Lansium would ever consider walking back from? Well, it's one of those things that where, um, you know, similar to like a drug company that spends a whole bunch of money on like research and development, 
is that Lancium spent a, 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 quite a bit of money on the research development and the time, and so along that way, they protected the IP that they developed. So for Lancium and how it works for, for licensing, is we're open to anybody for licensing. And if you think about like um, a service that's offered in Texas, for example, is, is, a, is a retail electric provider. And what that person is, is uh, the company is, they own the meter for what you're consuming energy at. And so they're going to charge you a certain fee for them just to actually uh, settle with ERCOT and to collect payment and to kind of give you your invoicing, right? So they're your interface for kind of power purchasing. And so that fee that they're charging is somewhere between, um, I've seen it as low as a dollar and up to $4, right? And so the, the licensing fee we have with Lansing is, is lower than kind of what like a retailer is charging just to send you an invoice. And so like the punchline on this is that we're, we're open to, to, to working with anybody. It's an open uh, license that's not restrictive. Um, yeah. I had to ask. Yeah, it's, I'm glad you did. I, I, I was kind of blown away by Sean's analogy between Bitcoin miners and power generators in the sense that um, <clears throat> once those markets developed and became less regulated, became these very sophisticated uh, ways of maximizing revenues and hedging. And it took time for the industry to learn those methods. Once they did, um, then th they became decoupled from the price of the good they were delivering power. And it became about operation and that the same exact transformation will happen within Bitcoin and is happening within Bitcoin as miners become more sophisticated and decoupling from the good itself, rather than just being, I mean, in a way it's created, we were talking about this, this situation is in some way a byproduct of us not having uh, an ETF, a spot ETF in Bitcoin, because miners became a proxy for the commodity rather than what they actually are, which is operators. They are a separate industry from Bitcoin itself. And so in some ways, the distortion is a byproduct of the SEC's uh, decision um, but, but also, you know, it tells you where Bitcoin could be headed, which is, which is that large generators themselves become Bitcoin miners because they already have this whole super sophisticated suite of tools. They have the balance sheets to, um, to, to hedge in a way that doesn't risk, risk themselves. They have a diversity of hedging devices. Sean was kind of walking me through this. And so that's kind of one picture is, you come back to your earlier concern uh, about centralization and lo locality, is that the people who are best positioned to operate in the Sean Connell, super sophisticated power trader way, <laughs> it, that, that definitely I think uh, most of us plebs barely grasp, not having lived in these markets. You know, if that's where Bitcoin mining is headed, then certain large centralized super sophisticated players will dominate that market because they'll dominate every on everything other than the production of Bitcoin. And they'll be hedged against um, volatility in the price of Bitcoin in ways that are going to be harder for, or, you know, mm -hmm. less sophisticated investors, less sophisticated and large and centralized and diverse operations to do. So that's kind of the one picture. And the other picture is kind of what I spelled out on the show last time of Bitcoin mining as an ancillary, an auxiliary tool that integrates with lots of different industries, whether it's, you know, paper mills or it's uh, purifying water or it's district heating or 
what have you, those operations are necessarily going to be smaller, in part because a lot of it's about reusing heat. And ASICs produce a ton of heat. It's low-grade heat, but it doesn't take a lot of ASICs to heat that swimming pool, right? It's kind of remarkable how much energy is going through the system. So that puts a natural limiter on how big a given operation can be. Uh, and it doesn't mean that one entity couldn't control a lot of these distributed things. But if you look at like where the need is for water purification, how much ASICs it takes to purify water, how many ASICs, or how many ASICs it takes to heat um, at, a, at a paper plant or whatever, that's a need. If that's the primary kind of revenue stream, that's highly distributed and there's a cap on how big that is. Mm -hmm. And so this is the open question that's cool for me. Uh, and I really don't know where it will go, which is like, does the the Sean Connell vision of a sophisticated generator-like or just generator um, miner where you get the economies of scale. Obviously, a lot of mining does have economies of scale. You build a facility and it's marginal addition to have more ASICs there, right? In all sorts of ways. You get the economies of scale, but you also get the sophistication and the tools that come with being a large operator versus the distributed, small, varied, um, alternative revenue streams, methane credits would be another one. You know, Adam Wright's uh, mm -hmm. sizer, like one, like 1 1.5 meg megawatt f facilities or one megawatt facilities on small landfills. That's tiny compared to Rockdale, right? Um, uh, Riot's putting in like a gigawatt facility. Mm -hmm. um, th that's a lot. That's a lot of landfills. Mm. So these are the kind of two visions. And to come back to your point about how much can five billion buy us. Five billion is going, Sean's point is that five billion is going really far compared to where it went, went a year ago. And, mm -hmm. um, uh, and that's because the CapEx portion is shrinking and the OpEx is expanding. And these alternative revenue streams are going to make it go farther. And we talked about that last time, right? Mm. But, but what's the distribution and what benefits? Because as you say, this is Bitcoin fixing different things. Bitcoin fixing grids, uh, Bitcoin fixing uh, heating, Bitcoin fixing other industries. The question of what Bitcoin will fix is to me a wide open question. It has to be carefully modeled how much uh, you know, profit maximization comes from being the, 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 a generator style operator and how much comes from these alternative revenue streams. And that's the kind of exciting open question I have. Yeah. And, and the last thing I just kind of add on just uh, the patent part was just that, you know, we went through the bill there about kind of what the, the $70 bill is. And so like with our patents and they're offering it, it's not just that here's the software and kind of go deal with it. It's essentially like us doing everything for you. So you're going from that $70 bill to this $36 bill. So it's all of the services of having a power desk that's actually allowing the Bitcoin miners to mine, but you know, having somebody that's actually doing all those activities that's actually interfacing with you to deliver that. So it's not just about here's a software. So for a few bucks to go from, you know, 70 bucks to this 35, seems like a pretty good uh, outcome. Look, I don't disagree with that. I mean, there are people who have software and licensing within Bitcoin, but mm -hmm. Bitcoin is about human flourishing and open source. I, I think there's a difference between a license and a patent, that if someone did something, something similar without ever knowing what you've done, mm -hmm. that you may enforce that patent. Mm -hmm. And I, I just I just know that it, it's the only thing that's come up with regards to Lantium and you coming mm -hmm. on the show. It came up, so I had to ask. But yeah. like, it is cool. it is what it is. I, I don't know enough about it to properly grill you on it. I, I may do it at some point in the future. But listen, this is so wild. I mean, I, got, I think back to when I started this show just over five years ago, the types of conversations I was having then with regards to 
what is Bitcoin? What is a UTXO? Like, how does a network work? Oh, this is good money for people in other locations. We're now at the point where we're discussing integration of mining within grids to to, to provide grid stability and, and supporting uh, the future of, like, a, hopefully a carbon-free energy sources. To go from there to this, fucking wild. I've got no idea what we discuss in five years' time, but these unknown unknowns are, are very exciting. So I want to say a big thank you to both coming on. It's a real pleasure to... Uh, interview you separately but have you together as uh, as an honor um yeah thank you good luck good luck yeah, thanks peter thanks for having us all right how good was that how good are sean and troy the whole expansion of the bitcoin mining energy sector has been absolutely fascinating we've been covering it loads recently i've also been making this film this bitcoin mining film is going to be out on the 30th of march but just going down the energy and mining rabbit hole has been fascinating. I mean, if you didn't hear my recent show with Anthony Jarrett on nuclear or Everett Redmond, go and check those out. But I've been enjoying this kind of content, and it was just so good to get Sean and Troy together. Now, listen, I'm in New York. We're making a whole bunch of bonus content for our patrons. If you want to check that out, head over to patreon.com forward slash what Bitcoin did. And also tomorrow, we've got our live event, WBD Live with the legend of Junseth. We're going to be doing an interview with him live in front of a studio audience. And also, we're going to have a Q&A and hang out afterwards. If you want to get a ticket for that, please head over to whatbitcoindid.com. And if you've got any questions about this or anything else, you know you can reach out to me. It's hello at what bitcoindid.com and I will get back to you as soon as possible.